Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, if you haven't voted yet, make a plan to vote. Make a plan for you, your family, your friends. If you've got that absentee ballot in your hand, read the instructions, fill it out. Drop it in your mailbox or take it to a Dropbox. Get out there, gang. Now is the time. We don't have extra days. We don't have extra hours. Vote for the pro-democracy candidate in your state, in your county, in your district. Gang, we can do this if we do it together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, available wherever fine podcasts are found, Joe Trippy. Joe, welcome back. Man, great to be with you, Reed. I'm also joined once again by Trig V. Olson, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and president of Viking Strategies, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trig V., welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be here. Oh, geez, guys. Okay, so as we're recording this, it's the Friday before Election Day 2022. We were all commiserating right before we turned the mics on that it's this point in the cycle, right, where, you know, we've been at it for two years since the last one. You're a little bit sort of like it's all over but the crying, right? For most campaigns, the last money spent, all the switches are flipped. The political team is now like in charge, right? You've got people on the campaign who have never called a voter in their life who are like, congratulations, you're a fundraiser. You're now calling voters. And they're like, bah. And so, Joe, before we get into the specifics, just give the audience a little bit of with this last few days. And as folks hear this, it'll be the last 24 hours. Feels like when you sort of like it's on autopilot. When I was running campaigns, I always felt like these were the hardest days because there's just it's all humming or it's not. And if it's not humming, oh, man, there's no time. It's like desperation, Hail Mary time. And and even your last spots are already if you're scrambling right now to make a spot and get it up, you're in deep trouble. So at this point, you know, I went out and knocked on doors or made calls. Like you said, the fundraising person that gets told, get in there and get on the phone and call, talk to voters. That's all you can do at this point. As you said, everything's sort of on autopilot and you're the campaign manager. You sit there and you can do a couple of spin press calls, but even that spin's not going to change anything. Right. It doesn't change reality. It doesn't change reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, trick me. My dad, who was in campaigns for decades himself, said this was about the time when he started to go see movies. Now, remember, this is like the 80s and early 90s, right? So there wasn't an internet. There wasn't, you know, TikTok to keep you occupied. You really like didn't have much else to do. I was always a movie guy on election day. I would go and sit in the theater by myself, eat popcorn, watch movies. And the day before, the Monday before, I would do like Joe would do. I would go knock doors. Or actually, usually I didn't want to knock on the doors because then I'd have to interact. And I was so nervous. So I would usually go places where you were doing like door hanging, get out the vote stuff. It's strange this election cycle, though. You know, obviously I'm out in the D.C. area and 
I have all these international people who know me from that side of my life who my Monday and Tuesday are filled with meetings with like Europeans and others who've reached out and are here to try and get a sense of what's happening. And that's kind of new. And, you know, they're unsure because there's a lot at stake in this election, right? Like if you're a Ukrainian, you have a lot at stake. If you're European, lots at stake beyond what's at stake for all of us as Americans. So Trigvin makes a good point there. So it seems as if the Republicans will take the U.S. House of Representatives. They have said that their platform is cuts to Social Security and Medicare, that they'll shut down the government over a debt ceiling increase. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as we're recording this, said that when they take control of Congress, there will be not one more dollar for Ukraine. They've talked of impeaching Joe Biden and making Hunter Biden the centerpiece of two years of legislative activity. Things that are fundamentally an anathema to not just some Americans, but most Americans across the board. And yet it looks like they're going to sweep into power, at least in one chamber. I think all those things are the reason it's so close. You've got to be honest about it with the inflation, gas prices, Biden's approval ratings. What's keeping Democrats in this? It's what McConnell said about poor candidate quality. That's the, really the only explanation and these extreme, really anti-American policies that they I mean, getting rid of Social Security and Medicare, not funding Ukraine. I mean, it's a question of will enough Americans reject it on Tuesday? And yeah, I'm worried too that there may not be quite enough and they take the House. And if we can't prevent it on Tuesday, which I still think is what we should be talking about, how do people you know, get out there and knock on the doors? These are very, very close elections. And we shouldn't buy into this sort of flood of the Republican pollsters who are sort of flooding the zone with, with a bunch of Republican polls in terms of their sample sizes, sort of underrepresenting Democrats and having too many of their voters in it. I think it's all part of sort of getting people into that frame that, hey, it's not possible and I can't make a difference. And the reality is these damn things are so close right now. Everybody out there can make a difference. Trigby, to one of Joe's points there is that, first of all, remember that it's only been three times since 1900, right? Better than 120 years ago that a first term president's party has picked up seats in his first midterm. And the last time was 2002, which is George W. Bush. I think every one of those examples has its own thing. That happened to have been post 9-11. It was a national security election. I was at the White House at the time. Stewart and Rick were making spots, you know, for Republican candidates. But, you know, when we used to see these stories, right, that Joe's talking about how it's going to be a wave election, Republicans are likely to take over, Democrats are likely to take over what happens. It was based on sort of historical theory, polling, all that other stuff. It might still be that, but there also seems to Joe's point to be this thing of it's going to be a red wave. It's going to be a red wave. It's going to be a red wave. And if it's not, it's because the Democrats stole it again. What I will tell you is this is what I know. Democrats are doing far better than historically they should. They're doing far better because we've had some tipping points that have occurred and we'll find out how big a tipping points they are, 1-6 being one of them, which I think is impacted, even more so the Dobbs decision. And so you kind of have this weird sort of coverage of it because one of the hardest things in life is understanding when the game you're playing has changed or the rules have changed, and that happens. And, you know, it's distinctly possible that some of those historical norms 
were the norms until they're not, and events change those norms. And I think there's some of that going on. I was just out in Wisconsin with Timmer, Jeff Timmer, who's our colleague, and you're talking about a very purple state. It's a state that's going to matter greatly in the presidential election. And literally, you know, the governor's race is on a knife's edge, you know, and the Marquette poll just came out 48-48. The credible polls are all showing it within a point of each other. They've shown it within a point of each other for months. And then the Senate race, you know, Ron Johnson is probably up a couple of points on Barnes. But that's within the margin of error, too. It shouldn't be that close in a year with all the things Joe was talking about and historically with the Democrat sitting in the White House. But it is. And it is because the electorate is changing, you know, and some of that is because of events. Some of that's just demographics, right? Older people who vote Republican, there's fewer of them relative to the number of younger people who may or may not vote who are more likely to vote Democrat. But, Joe, I mean, one thing we often forget is that these things don't occur in a vacuum, right? There's infinite numbers of variables. Some are more impactful than others. Some have more gravitational weight than others. To Trigvi's point about the changing electorate, one is I think the electorate has long been fluid. Remember, going back to 2002, remember Karl Rove famously said that they thought in the wake of 2002 that Bush could create a permanent conservative governing majority. And that lasted, what, exactly four years, I think? Yeah. And that's a long time. You know, but some of this is the coverage too, Reed. I mean, look, it's really fascinating to me that all the coverage is how come the Democrats can't get their message straight? You know, the circular firing squad already starting up supposedly, although I haven't seen any of that on the Democratic side, instead of how is it that with inflation, gas prices, beating the door on crime, immigration, everything that they're pounding to get people afraid and, and angry about, how is it with Joe Biden's approval rating being where it is, how is it that with all that, you should be ahead by 10 points in almost all these races? You're not. What's the failure of the Republican Party that it's so bad that in face of all that, the American people are in a 50-50 state? Well, because they're incompetent and corrupt. Yeah. And crazy and weird and extreme. It's just going to continue, you know. And so I think people are, again, I've seen, you know, a lot of focus groups where, particularly with women, and this is pre-Dobbs, we're just sick of the chaos that MAG is creating. But Trigby, to that point, you know, the suburban white married woman is once again the unicorn of the electorate. Yeah, that's Bannon line. No doubt. Right. The Bannon line. Right. They're swing voters. They're consistently swing voters. And to Joe's point, you know, and I think we saw this with McCarthy's quixotic sort of commitment to America thing at the end of August and early September, which was they realized that they were hemorrhaging those voters and they sort of frosted the cake in sort of like, you know, commitment to America. But the truth was, it's the fall. It's an even year. It's time to scare the white people. And so they come in with crime. They come in with immigration. We've seen these heinous, but heinous to the point of ridiculous ads out of Stephen Miller's groups about rapists and murders. It's literally July of 2015 all over again, because that's where they go, right? Is I don't have to win all of these people. I just got to scare enough of them. Look, when Tommy Tuberville in Las Vegas a few weeks ago said, those people are coming to take your stuff. Like the only thing he left out was actually saying the N word. Right. You know, so one of the things that I thought was fascinating when I was out in Wisconsin, I saw a 
well, he's not a kid anymore. Trippy and Reed know this. Like when somebody works for you long ago on a campaign and they're a kid, they're forever a kid. Yeah. Even if they're like, <laughs> exactly. it's just like your own children, right? Your own children <laughs> yeah. are always five years. I saw a bunch of those in <laughs> Iowa when I was out there four or five uh, days ago. Right. He's 45 and got four kids of his own, but he's still a kid to me. But uh, he's a super smart communications guy. And he said, you know, the interesting thing is, He's like, Republicans build narratives. Democrats talk about policy. And we were talking about what had transpired in the Wisconsin governor's race and the Johnson Barnes race. And um, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like Republicans build some narratives around values and really good sound bites that scare people. Whereas Democrats on the macro tend to talk about like big policy issues. Now, he also made the point, which was fascinating, because Obama had just been in Wisconsin. He's like, Obama's a guy who came into this state and left a mark, because Obama actually does talk in a way like on Social Security when he came in. He just lit Ron Johnson up with passion around the value of it and built a narrative. And I think that's a lesson going forward. I think that's something we at the Lincoln Project actually have maybe really done a good job of building some narratives, in part maybe because a lot of us come out of you know the Republican side. But I wish Democrats had done more of that. I think the other thing that was really apparent and has become apparent, if you look at like what Gretchen Whitmer has done in Michigan in terms of she got the governorship and how she governed and who she reached out to, she stood firm on her core principles. But then she started reaching out to the business community. She did a lot of stuff in suburban Republican areas. That's the way you know John Engler built a majority in Michigan. That's the way Tommy Thompson, when I was working for him in the early 90s, built a coalition in Wisconsin that eventually became a really ugly empire like in Star Wars. That is what you have to do. And Tony Evers didn't do as much of that. Gretchen Whitmer should be a lesson to what Democrats should be doing. But, Joe, I mean, this is, to my mind, politics 101, which is, you know, going into almost any race, regardless of whether or not it's Democrats versus MAGA at this point. It used to be Democrats versus normal Republicans. Everybody knew they started at 45. It was that 5% plus one that everybody really needed. Therefore, you know, you had to do stuff to lock up the base. As Mitt Romney famously said, you know, you run to the base in the primary, you run to the middle in the general. But now, certainly Republicans seem to ab abandon that all the time and hope to draw people back in with fear and resentment. Democrats seem unwilling or unable sometimes to do that because they're afraid of their own base. I mean, I think you see Katie Hobbs in Arizona has been most concerning to me because Carrie Lake is such a nut that there should have been plenty of room for her to move to the middle. But I think sometimes it's, you know, well, if I move to the middle, then these people are going to be afraid. And it's always inaction based on if we do this, then that bad thing will happen. But then you didn't do the thing you needed to do. So the bad thing happened. You know, look, there's a reason MAGA's taken control of the Republican Party. It's because they're very big part of the party, and no one, very few, can have a hope of seeking the nomination and definitely can't win the general without every single one of them turning out. That's why they keep moving to MAGA, even when they know better, they're going to do it. I definitely think that people like Hobbs had a lot of room to move, and where they haven't, they're not getting the full advantage of how crazy MAGA is. And that's why she's in a dead heat or worse in Arizona. But for the most part, Democrats, much more like 2018, most of our nominees, the vast majority of them, I'm not saying there isn't one here or there, but the vast majority of them, like Mike Franken in Iowa is an admiral 
the perfect foil to go up against Grassley. I was just out there in Iowa, knocked on doors. And look, I don't know whether Franken is going to win or not, but Grassley's in real trouble. And part of his problem is now with Trump coming in yesterday, or as you listen to this a couple of days ago, I'm not sure that Trump helped him with a lot of those voters that I was talking to at the door. So I just think that it's that extreme element and that it's so pronounced on the Republican side that I think a lot of these Bannon line voters and some other independents, it could break in these final days. And I think we're going to see surprises on both sides. Franken could win in Iowa, which is something no one's been focused on at all, you know, and that the Republicans could win a seat or a governorship that we thought we had. And we wake up and it's an upside down world for both parties. I still deep down think that the candidate quality problem that McConnell talked about, we talked about the circular firing squad, him and Scott will be, if they they don't win the Senate, you know, we'll see the blame game going on about how that all happened. It's always heartening when you hear something that you've said a hundred times and then somebody says it back to you. Chuck Grassley was born in the first year of FDR's first term. That means that Chuck Grassley is older than the New Deal. Think about that. And especially now in a time when things move so fast, you know, to use some sort of aquatic metaphor, he's a glacier. But I think that the flip side that the Democrats did in Iowa was that they picked a nominee who was acceptable to, I think, a lot of Iowa voters, even if he's not a Republican. No, and he's got a great message. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I think we've got a lot of candidates like that out there. I know we can say, you know, Hobbs, but something's keeping even Hobbs in it. There's this dichotomy where you have, it should be run away, particularly in a place like Arizona with the campaign Hobbs has run. And it's not, it's not run away. Well, it's because if you think about Arizona, right, on the Republican side, and this is where the vulnerability with what the Republicans do, and it is that Bannon line, you know, the McCain wing of the Republican Party isn't going to stand with Kerry Lake. A lot of them aren't going to vote for Kerry Lake under any circumstances. The problem is Hobbs has given them zero reason to vote for him. And, you know, I mean, to use the Wisconsin thing, I was on a call and a bunch of people who are not from Wisconsin and they were like, well, Ron Johnson's going to lose to Barnes, right? And I said, you know, that one's tougher than the governor's race, which is a true toss up because Barnes has run to the left of Tammy Baldwin. And so when I think about my beer drinking buddies back in Wisconsin, most of them are voting Evers Johnson and they don't even like Johnson, but it's because Barnes hasn't given them a reason. They think he's going to abolish the police and all the rest. Same has gone on in Arizona. You know, Hobbs just has not given them a reason and then not showing up in the debate was ridiculous. It was her chance to contrast the crazy that it is Carrie Lake to her. You know, we as a country tend to put this stuff in the context of elections because they're on a set schedule every two years. But the truth is, is that even if Democrats, you know, do much better tomorrow as we're recording this, than we think if Donald Trump runs and is beaten again, okay, now there's 26. But I've said this before. It's like when a patient is sick, once you get done being sick, it's not like you walk out of the hospital the day after you say, oh, you're cured. Right. And you feel like a million bucks. I mean, there's healing that needs to go on. There's therapy that needs to go on, physical and otherwise. And so these are way stations in this fight. I mean, look, you know, I go back to the 80s where it took three successive losses for Democrats on the progressive side 
for the party to reconfigure itself with Bill Clinton in 92. I mean, we got creamed by Reagan twice and then George Herbert Walker Bush. And the party kept moving in the wrong direction, I think, in terms of taking those losses. And then finally in 92, decided that it needed to change course. That's the problem here with MAGA, is that just winning in 2022 won't be enough. Even 2024 will probably not be enough. This is a long-term fight, as Trigby keeps pointing out. It always is when it's democracy versus autocracy. But the bigger thing I still think that we've talked about, but we need to really figure out is, you know, Philip Bump did that sort of look at how crime became the issue. And it's pretty instructive of how Fox starts all of a sudden out of nowhere. There's nothing to instigate it. But all of a sudden in September, crime, crime, crime. The number of stories on crime and the intensity of it keep going up. And then, almost like clockwork, all the Republican candidates start doing crime, crime, crime. Crime ads, talking about crime. And then, sure enough, two, three weeks later, both CNN and MSNBC start covering that crime is growing as an issue in the campaign, and they start covering it. And then Democrats get caught in the vortex, and all of a sudden crime is the number, you know, one thing anybody's talking about. And it's all a plan. It was instigated and started by this outrage machine, the same way critical race theory, et cetera, has been created. And until we understand it's not just elections, it's communications, it's media, it's creating a counter to all this, not just as a political party, but as a communications network that I think is becoming more clear to me that that's part of the long-term problem that needs to get solved. So Trigby, to zoom out for a sec, to Joe's point, there's that famous video of Lee Atwater, who was George H.W. Bush's campaign manager, said, in the 50s, you could say N-word, N-word, N-word. In the 60s, you couldn't, so you said busing. And then the 70s, you said crime. In the 80s, you said welfare queens. Now we're back to crime. So they're sort of recycling it. In 72, George McGovern is the Democratic nominee for president. He's a decorated B-24 pilot in World War II, but is against Vietnam. And for the next however many years, maybe it goes on to today, Democrats are soft on national security, soft on communism. Jimmy Carter's presidency didn't help with that. Ronald Reagan comes in strong, stands up to the communists. They crumble. You know, Democrats have always been weak on crime, even though, you know, Clinton put more cops on the street, put more people in jail, which now got Hillary Clinton in trouble. But to Joe's point, the narratives that we're talking about, one, are decades in the development and continuance, but also, you know, defund the police might be the most damaging thing any Democrats said in the last 50 years. I think it kind of gets back to the whole thing. Republicans build narratives and around values and Democrats talk about policy. You know, on the national security thing, as you were saying that, like the message from the Biden White House needs to be Joe Biden is the leader of the free world and defending the free world from Vladimir Putin and G. full stop. And then the pivot into that is Republicans are weak on national security. They're going to cave to Vladimir Putin. They want to cut off the Ukrainians. They want to defy what Reagan stood for. And they're saying it out loud. And they're saying it over and over again. Kevin McCarthy can talk till he's blue in the face about how he came from a family of Democrats. He's full of shit. He isn't Ronald Reagan Republican. This is why I joined the Lincoln Project. Because like, I just wish that there would be 
some understanding that you guys have in my party, the Democrats, of how to communicate this stuff. I am beside myself about how we don't do that. Even on climate change, it'd be far better to say we are the only nation on earth that can solve this problem. Our technology, our ability. I mean, you know, to go into it with a much more aggressive approach than I don't want to touch that stove because there's voters out there who are going to scream about their pickup trucks. We, we need to talk to those people, but there's a better way to do it. Well, but I mean, just on the pickup truck thing for a second, though, you know, talking to someone who's very in the know when it comes to Ford, right? There's a reason why they're literally oversubscribed on sales for the F-150 Lightning, like through 2023. And it's not because people love the freaking internal combustion engine, right? It's a means to an end. It gets you from A to B. I mean, it's not like you go to the gas station, you're like, oh, this is great gas. I only get this gas. Like, oh, yeah, there's a tiger in your tank. Remember when they did that? Remember when Exxon had there's a tiger in your tank? Like, that shit doesn't work anymore. Like, who cares? But, Joe, this is the last time I'm going to bash on your party is, but then you get stuck with the Green New Deal. And then it's like no cheeseburgers and no airplanes. And people are like, that's fucking crazy. And then AOC's guy who put it out said, oh, no, it's a radical change to how we live our lives. And Americans are like, I don't want anything to do with that. That's what I'm saying. We have much stronger ways to communicate our policies. But as Trigby has said, we're just not good at the narrative thing about sort of narrating that story to where we're trying to take the country. And it's not just the narrative, but it's the repetition. It's the shortness. Build that wall. Really simple. And the Democrats were like trying to explain policy, trying to reason with people. So, like, I think we do a great job at policy and do a horrible job of explaining any of it. Democrats actually want to govern. The problem is that there's a step before that. I mean, one, one last thing on this front is Kyle Spencer, who was the guest on, on the last episode of the podcast and her book, Raising Them Right, which if you have not read it, you must read it because it will give you incredible insight into all of the types of things we're talking about as we go back decades. You know, she went to one of the trainings. It was, I think, at the uh, Leadership Institute. And she said, sell this stuff like you're selling a bag of potato chips. If you're going to sell a bag of potato chips, how would you sell a bag of potato chips to this person? And that's how you do it. It's so simple because to distill it like that, Trigby, you actually have to spend time thinking about how you do that. It's not like, well, this is a bag of ruffles and it's potatoes and sunflower oil or whatever it is. And then there's salt and then, you know, dextrose. Like Democrats would explain like every ingredient in the bag. Right. Which you'd either be like, well, A, it's taking too long. I don't have this kind of time. And B, there's a couple of things in there that I don't think I like the sound of. As opposed to the Republicans are like, ruffles. They taste good. Everybody likes them. Have them at your party. And Lay's causes it. <laughs> right. Well, they're the same right? company. But yeah, <laughs> but Fritos will make your teeth fall out. Democrats don't go on offense on this stuff, though. Here's the thing. The whole own the libs thing. Like when I was doing Republican campaigns. We knew when Democrats would land blows, we would just hold the shiny object out there, whatever it was, something ridiculous, and basically hit them with it. And they would get completely distracted by it. I mean, I think about when I got sent down to be the adult in the room in Rand Paul's race in Kentucky. I mean, Jack Conway had Rand Paul on the mat because he was pummeling him over cutting Medicare and Social Security. And what did we do? We held up some shiny object about, you know, a story in GQ that 
Jack Conway had bared false witness against Rand Paul for using this thing that he had smoked pot in college. And Conway stopped talking about, and, you know, it blew it up on Fox and elsewhere. Conway quit talking about Social Security and Medicare that was taking two points off our tracking every night and started talking about, oh, I'm not bearing false witness against anybody. And now you're having a conversation that's completely making him look like he's out of touch with the evangelicals, right? Like, Democrats have to start owning, and it's what Lincoln Project has excelled at, owning the MAGA. That's what we do. And think about how much time, and we're going to be back at this when Donald Trump announces, no one gets in his head better than we do. And they end up spending all their time talking about us, bitching about us, calling us all kinds of names and all the rest. The Democrats have to get so much better at that. So let's turn to what we see, guys, is what we're hearing now, both from Axios and I think CNN is reporting that Donald Trump, the former president, fairly defeated and rightfully defeated in 2020, is likely to announce a third presidential run. It's hard to believe it's been three times, but this will be the third on or about November 14th, which would be a week from today. And there's any number of reasons we could go into. He's afraid of prosecution. He can't stand being out of the spotlight. He really wants to be president again. He wants the money. He wants the fame. He hates Ron DeSantis. It could be any number of things. None of them, though, are about like making the United States a better place. In fact, it's almost about making the world and the country a worse place. So CNN was talking about it, that they have sources that say it's two to three weeks from now, which sort of fits with Axios's November 14th date. But he's making so much noise about it. I think it, do you think it impacts anything in the election? Well, if reporters would do their jobs to some degree, okay, now I'm going to be the guy bashing the media from the other side, I guess. But here's the thing. Yesterday, Donald Trump goes on a radio show and says, first thing Republicans should do is impeach Mitch McConnell. My question to the media is, how many of you reporters have asked Ron Johnson or Oz or Herschel Walker, do they stand? Is that their priority? Why are you not asking that question? That is the logical question that you should be asking. If it was done on the right, the right would be amplifying up every communications platform that they have to amplify that. And when reporters aren't asking it, it would be the lamestream media and fake news is refusing to ask the question that should be being asked. Every single one of those guys should be being asked that. To the best of my knowledge, I saw no stories, and I follow this probably closer than most human beings, I saw no stories today where anyone was asked about that. It's malfeasance because that actually is news. Well, but a bit again, you know, to the point about, can you really believe this? He's going to get back in in a week, you know, couldn't you just have given everybody at least a month off to get some rest? And, and you guys both said, rightfully so, they grind you down, they grind you down, they grind you down. This is how they do it. And now the media, and I think it's a good point, Trigby, but I think they also use it as an excuse is he says this kind of stuff all the time, right? So what difference does it make? Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, we will be right back in that fight if and when it happens, because that's what we do. All right, guys, before I let you go, Trigby, where can our crew find you online? They can find me at Trigby, D-R-Y-G-V-E Olson on Twitter. All right. And Joe, how about you? At Joe Trippy on Twitter and give That Trippy Show, my podcast, a listen if you can. Yes, please do that, guys. That Trippy Show, absolutely worth the listen. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Trigby. 
Joe, thanks for joining me. And guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.